history month bitch yeah sure is <laughs> yeah that, that was like a whole lot right in my ear right there <laughs> uh this is the weirdest thing podcast i'm scotty milder i'm amelia Ampuero. uh hey. we're we're your hosts um and sorry for the <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> I, should, I should turn my headphones down if you're gonna do that <laughs> Okay, well, another another rock and start to the podcast. Yep, so. yep. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, yeah, been uh, starting my classes, ready for um, maybe this like sort of shitty winter to be over. Like, I'd be more into winter if we were actually getting enough snow for me to go skiing. Right. That's like it's just been cold. We yeah. had a snow last week. Yeah, but it's like the one snow we've had this year. Yeah, and now it's just turned into ice in my driveway, and like mm-hmm. three times I've almost fallen on my ass. So I'm, I'm, oh, I did fall on my oh, ass. Oh, did you? Well, well, good times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and also fell while I had. Um, my mom is going to be listening to this, and she's going to be like, "Devi here," because she was telling me <laughs> to shovel my driveway, and I was like, "I can't. I don't have time. I don't have time." Mm, yeah. But my car was in the driveway, and I had opened the door and slid on the patch of ice. So I, you know, instinctually tried to like keep myself upright with the arm that was holding the car door. Yeah. Um, So like all of the muscles across my upper back um, are Um, just just like just pissed. Just like. You're nearly 43 years old. Like you, you don't need know, to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, you should know better. And the thing is, is like the way that I was falling, I landed like on my bum, right? And like nothing's mm-hmm. gonna happen to me. Right. From landing on my butt. I should have just like allowed myself to fall. But like I said, instinct took over. Yeah. Instinct took over and was like, no, try to save yourself. <laughs> yeah i was carrying in groceries the other day and like stepped on oh my seat. god and luckily i like almost the bag of eggs almost went flying but oh my god luckily bag of recovered. eggs and sap like celery <laughs> yeah. and the, the, the one baguette that you have <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah i'm I'm over this winter like like if we were like i said if we were giving snow where i could go skiing i'd be into it but like this part just sucks yeah, and I feel like it's been windy this winter, which I never like the wind. As somebody who's like outside walking every day with my dog, yeah. I can always do without without the wind. Yeah. She almost ate shit on a patch of ice today. And I- <laughs> <laughs> the poor thing, she looked betrayed uh, by nature, but <laughs> she was okay. <laughs> yeah, I think if Bowie slipped on the ice, she would just like give into it. That would just be right. her life at that point. Right. She'd just like, play out and just be like, yeah. this is where I live this now. Is where I, this is where I am. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is what it is. Well, uh, so yeah, it is Black History Month. It's also Women in Horror Month, which is, it is. Uh, 
going to be my story, but I think you're going first. Yes, uh, I am going first. And today we're going to celebrate the unconquerable spirit of black folks and one of America's first forms of fusion cuisine, soul food. Nice. Sources for this are First We Feast, an illustrated history of soul food, blackfoodie.com, the humble history of soul food, monticello.org, Epicurious, where soul food really comes from, Yes Magazine, how black culinary historians are rewriting the history of American food. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Soul Food, Scraps Became Cuisine, Celebrating African-American Spirit, and Wikipedia. Nice. Okay, so we know that the transatlantic slave trade... (laughs) Yeah. Captured. I don't mean to laugh at this. It just feels like, again, like starting at the beginning. Right. Um, Transatlantic slave trade captured and forcibly removed millions of West Africans, brought them to the U.S., enslaved them. That's kind of where our story begins. Right. So once here, both in the North and the South, slave owners controlled the amount of food that enslaved African-Americans would get per week. Just for our listeners, I'm going to be using African-American and Black, uh, like switching between the terms, um, depending sort of on like what the source used. Um, So just like know that. And be joyful. So yeah, so once they were here, uh, slave owners in the North and the South would be like, okay, we're giving you like this amount of food that is supposed to last you for the week. Um, So enslaved folks had to figure out a way to supplement their diets. So they fished, Mm -hmm. foraged, um, they would hunt, they would make little gardens. And they did that with transplanted vegetables from Africa, like okra. Oh, okay. And they even raised some livestock with a combination of knowledge brought from West Africa that they learned from European slavers and also poor white folks and indigenous people from the area. Right, right, right. There's a lot, there's, there's a lot going on there. Uh, what they were given, they were given some kind of starch and that could be like cornmeal, rice, sweet potatoes. They'd be given a couple of pounds of dried, salted or smoked meat, like beef, Right, fish, pork, um, and a jug of molasses. I am going to send you a picture real quick. And this is from the Monticello website. This is just to give you an idea, Scotty, of what their like weekly ration was. And I will also post it. Yeah. I also post it on social media. (laughs) So you can talk about what you're seeing there. I mean, there's like a bucket of, is that grain or flour? Uh, Yeah, maybe cornmeal. Not sure. It could be cornmeal. Actually, I think Mm -hmm. that is cornmeal. Three fish. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks like a napkin, but I don't think that's a napkin. I think it's like fat back. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's supposed to last a week. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Fuck that. (laughs) I mean, that would last me one, maybe a meal and a half. Yeah. Um, uh, Here's an interesting little, you know, just side note, historical side note. Some sources cited that enslaved people were given a peck of grain, which is an almost completely obsolete form of measurement that equals roughly two dry gallons. Okay. So they were given, you know, like a peck of cornmeal. Four pecks makes a bushel. So if you've ever heard the song, A Bushel and a Peck from Guys and Dolls, they're actually mm-hmm. talking okay. about like actual literal measurements, which I think I love you a bushel and a peck. So a bushel is four pecks. So that'd be eight gallons and a peck would be an extra two. They're talking about 10 gallons. Okay. Is there 
isn't really a lot. You're no. talking about like, I love you a bushel and a peck. It's not really a lot. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I remember that song and I, I always just thought it was like nonsense words thrown together. So, me too. Me yeah. too. Yeah. And then coming on this and I was like, what the heck? So, yeah. uh, you know, we've got a little bit of history for everybody here. Okay. So back to the food, these rations and the ingredients they were able to cultivate on their own led to dishes like cornbread, fried catfish, barbecue ribs, uh, mm-hmm. chitlins, neck bones, cooked greens, and sweet potatoes that of course resembled the yams that were native to African diets. Like we talked about in our Thanksgiving episode. Right. Um, they were also given the parts of the animals that the master's through away. So that's intestines, butts, feet, neck, jowls, and gizzards. I also mm. found out that ribs were also like garbage meat. Interesting. Just like you right. It's yeah, that's that's mind-blowing because to me, ribs is like that's like the delicacy part. Right. Yeah, yeah. but they were like, what are we gonna do with a bunch of ribs? Mm-hmm. And barbecue ribs was born. Yeah. I saw some sources that say that only on the weekends were enslaved people given access to prestige ingredients. And that was like processed flour, refined sugar, that Mm. kind of a thing that brought like an element of special or quote celebration meals to the origins of soul food. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they were like eating this stuff is like really sort of like it, it's not that it was necessarily lean, uh, but they were eating like really like sort of gosh, I one 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 uh, one of the articles called it hard time foods. So they were eating oh, like yeah. hard time foods during the week. And then on the weekends, they were eating like these celebratory foods. Okay. Eventually, when slave owners saw what enslaved people could do with the scraps, they were sort of like, well, I wonder what they could do with like, you know, quality ingredients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and they they gave enslaved people with cooking skills special privileges. Mm-hmm. A common misconception is that Thomas Jefferson brought macaroni and cheese to the U.S. Quick sidebar uh-huh. dishes similar to mac and cheese had existed in Italy dating back to the 1300s, like their written recipes dating right. back to the 1300s. But yeah, like it was sort of a comment like, you know, Thomas Jefferson was in France and he was in Europe and he was doing his whole thing and he brought macaroni and cheese to the U.S. It was actually his chef, an enslaved Mm. man by the name of James Hemmings, who was older brother to Sally Uh, Hemmings and half brother to Jefferson's wife, Martha. Uh I got to pause real fast (laughs) and talk about this. Yeah. (laughs) I knew that Jefferson had raped Sally Hemmings. Right. I did not know that she was Jefferson's wife's half sister. That's I never knew that either. That's yes. Yes. John Wales, Martha's father had 17 children, 11 with his three wives and another six with Betty Hemmings, James and Sally's mother. Uh, So like it was like, yeah, yeah. Jefferson fathered six children by Sally, Mm -hmm. which is just like, what the fuck? Right. This is some nasty, depraved shit. Yeah. And they were all doing it. All those slave owners. Yes. So just had to like take a sidebar to acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, Okay. But yes, James, Sally's brother was Jefferson's like personal chef. And he was actually the first American to be trained in French cuisine. Oh, 
No, that that's mm-hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. Um, he also became the head chef at Jefferson's Paris Palace, and he oversaw a large French-speaking staff. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, still still enslaved. Still enslaved. Wow. Yes. And so James is the one who brought macaroni and cheese to the US. Okay. He's the one who prepared it, perfected the recipe, and served it to Jefferson's guests. Jefferson's Total and sole involvement in bringing macaroni and cheese to the U.S. is that he owned the human who prepared the dish. Yeah. So again, so let's, let's not let's not give him the credit. Yeah, I mean, he gets credit for some other stuff. He doesn't need, he he doesn't need yeah. that feather in his cap. He doesn't need that on his CV. Like, yeah, <laughs> he's I mean, got I, plenty of other I, stuff. I have I have lots of opinions on Thomas Jefferson, which I won't get into. But he's my by far my least favorite of the founding fathers, and I'm not a big fan of any of them necessarily. So. I was going to ask, who is your? Do you have a favorite? I actually do like Hamilton. Okay, <laughs> like pre, pre, I was into Hamilton before it was cool. Um, I was into <laughs> Hamilton before it was cool, and so. actually. I think John, I don't know that much about John Adams, but I liked the HBO miniseries. And so uh-huh. it kind of made me like a John Adams fan. Even okay. I don't actually really understand anything about like his political philosophy. But I think like a lot of the the bullshit kind of stuff on the right in this country, like you can trace a lot of that back to Thomas Jefferson. I don't I think, I think there's plenty he did not serve us well with. Um right. And he raped Sally Hemings. Yeah. And who knows yeah. who else to be completely honest. Right. So yeah, um, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a Jefferson fan. Yeah. And I think it's it's like the founding fathers are an interesting thing, right? In terms of like understanding that they are the founding fathers of mm-hmm. this country and also making space for the fact that they were deeply flawed men and those things right. can coexist. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, uh, obviously he was a slave owner as well. Washington, like Washington contributed a lot of good things yeah, to this country. Yeah. Was- Washington, I think if I, if I have to pick a founding father, Washington. Yeah. Like mine. he didn't want political parties. He was the one where they like essentially tried to make him king and he was like, we're not doing that shit. Yeah. Um, so there's like a lot good things I can say about Washington. And yet the dude owned other human beings. So yes, you gotta, yeah. you, you can't let's, let's take them off the pedestal. Well, and there isn't anybody who is, there is absolutely, there is no historical figure that is wholly perfect or wholly villainous. Right. Like right. it's just, and I don't say this as an excuse that we were operating under, that humanity was operating under a different set of rules and maybe humans should have known better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact is, is that we were operating under a different set of rules yeah. and, and, you know, there, there are going to be people who did wonderful work in their lives and, you know, we're like raging anti, uh, um, anti-Semites. <laughs> yes. I was like, how do I finish that phrase? I was like, semitist, semitist, like my brain just, just took a break. The hamster wheel stopped. It stopped. Yeah. It stopped, you know, or like, you know, people who were wonderful and doing things, you know, for people of different races and they were like raging misogynists. Or well, I mean, you know? one of my favorite artists is Picasso and that dude was a fucking dick. Um, oh my God. And yeah. like, but even with all that you just said about like, yes, all of these historical figures are flawed and you need to just like accept that. 
even with that, I think uh, Jefferson's a dick. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and that's and and you know, and again, that's the thing is that I I don't think we live in a world where we have to do like one or the other. I don't think that we have to take right. all of the good and ignore all of the bad. And I don't think that we need to take all of the bad and dismiss the good. Like it's yeah. just people are complicated. Right. Um, should our should our episode title be Jefferson's a dick? <laughs> I mean, it's too early to tell. Let's I know. See. We'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. Okay. Anyway, all right. Sorry, I, I derailed you a little bit. No, that's totally fine. Um, I think. I mean, I was. I was complicit as well. Yeah. Okay. So, getting back to soul food. So we have soul food, and we have southern food, right. and. Are they the same? Mm-hmm. Uh, the terms are sometimes used interchangeably, but Adrian Miller, who is a former Clinton White House lawyer, and he's also author of the book Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time. He defines soul food as, quote, the food of the interior deep south, that landlocked area of mainly Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, essentially what used to be called the Cotton Belt and the Black Belt. Mm-hmm. It's the food that has been transported across the United States by African-American migrants who left during the Great Migration. Mm -hmm. Miller also defines Southern food as like the mother cuisine of soul food and says that it's more on the bland side, not as heavily spiced. Okay. In that way, Nashville hot chicken, which I talked about in in my accidental food story, Mm -hmm. is sort of like a great example of Southern food. You took fried chicken and you you turned up the volume on the flavor. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. So post-Civil War, during Reconstruction, food was showcased at, again, in Black communities, food was showcased at emancipation celebrations, holiday events, and Black church gatherings. Mm-hmm. There's also a whole thing that goes into sharecropping and what sharecropping meant for the evolution of soul food and yeah. the diet of Black people in this country. It sort of started to become this whole other thing thing <laughs> like a whole other story in and of itself right, right um so i'm not gonna that's pretty much all i'm gonna say about sharecropping but back to these like celebrations right folks would bring out their best foods at these events especially at these black church gatherings and so the tables were full of celebratory these like celebratory foods like fried chicken and fish coconut mm-hmm. cake uh sweet potato pies that yeah kind of stuff. In a way that mirrored the experience of all immigrants, Black folks looked to recreate these foods once they were in their new homes after the Great Migration. So they left the South. They were like, you know, fuck this this racist place. Fuck this Jim Crow bullshit, yeah. Right, and they left. And they started going to all of these places, but they were Mm -hmm. like, we miss our food. Right. Um, You have to realize that language, family, and homeland had been stripped from African-Americans when they were brought forcibly to this country. Mm -hmm. And what they had after the Great Migration was their food. And that's a huge part of any people's culture. And they wanted something that felt familiar and something that felt like home. So yeah. they got, they, they were like, okay, well, let's, let's start doing it. Adrian Miller, who wrote the book, who I quoted just now also had this thing that like soul food, he has, 
I should have written it down, but he had this thing where he was like, soul food is not so much about the individual dishes, but the places. Mm, yeah. That okay. The food is in. That makes sense. Okay. So what's, what's on a soul food menu? Yeah. Your typical soul food meal might have any or all of the following smothered or fried chicken, pork, maybe right. smothered pork, chitlins, ham hocks, pork necks. Uh, you'd have some kind of fish greens, and those could be collard, cabbage, mustard, turnip, or kale. Uh, mm-hmm. That was another thing that Adrian Miller said. He was like, people have been talking about kale. Like it's, it was invented like five or 10 years ago and black folks have been <laughs> yeah, eating kale like, for like 300 years. I was going to say like, everyone thinks it's like the hipsters in Brooklyn came up with yeah. kale. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> candied yams, black eyed peas, macaroni and cheese, cornbread, hot sauce, and some kind of red drink. Miller mm. says that in soul food culture, red is a color and a flavor. He was <laughs> like, we don't bother with like strawberry, cherry, cranberry. It's just red. Drink. Red. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Um, I don't know if this falls in with this and I don't know where all this soda is, but in Texas, there was a soda called big red. And I was like, what is the flavor of big red? And Texans were like red. Yeah. I mean, it probably comes from this probably comes from like similar. Yeah. I don't know. But I was like, that doesn't, (laughs) that's not a thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like being, being from New Mexico, I was like, that's not a thing. Is it like strawberry? And they were like, is red. Yeah. I mean, even like we have our red and green chili here, but like we will, like when people ask, what does green chili taste like? We're not like green. Like we try to like. (laughs) It's green. Yeah. We we will try to articulate the difference between. Right. (laughs) Right. Some sources also said that it was a point of pride when black folk, when they gained the prosperity financially to be able to make macaroni and cheese a food staple, Mm -hmm. like being able to afford pasta and cheese and to wrap it into the soul food menu was like, heck yes, we've made it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Additionally, Soul food mac and cheese should be able to be cut like a cake and a slice should be able to be held with one hand. Mm-hmm. I've heard that, you know, mm, that sounds is, fantastic. I mean, I will say like not to go too much into my like my bullshit, as you like to call it. But like the one, <laughs> the one thing, <laughs> of course, I picked the moment <laughs> that you're drinking to say that. Uh, now, the one thing that I miss almost the most being on keto is mac and cheese and like Mm. that kind of mac and cheese like yeah the kind that you can cut yeah so good and it's really hard to find around here but like there were a few places that would do it yeah a lot of places here do more of the kind of like stove top right um Sort of thing. And actually like the traditional Italian recipe that sort of they found recreations of it in France and in England around like the 1400s was like a lasagna. Mm, yeah. So, but again, if you think about, if you think about a well-made lasagna, you can cut it like a cake and you can hold yeah. a slice yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. Getting, getting hungry. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. So soul food starts, its origins are as this calorie dense food that sustains enslaved people during slavery. Right. Then it becomes a celebration food during reconstruction. And then again becomes an everyday food during the great migration because black folks were finally becoming financially Hmm. prosperous. (laughs) Prosperous. 
<laughs> because black folks were becoming financially prosperous enough to be able to afford the ingredients. Yeah. This also leads to a certain stigma placed around soul food that it's like super high calorie. It's all fried, mm, yeah. super sweet, fatty foods. It's terrible for you. This stigma persists today. And mm. uh, I'm, we're going to put a pin in that because I'll come back to that in, okay. in just a sec. Also cool. When black folks moved to these Northern cities during the great migration, they were, I mean, this is not cool, but the, the end result is they were of course, like any other immigrant population, they were forced to live close to everyone who wasn't Anglo-Saxon white. Mm -hmm. So they were sharing spaces with other immigrants. Yeah. And that meant that black folks and immigrants got to experience each other's foods and started experimenting with fusion cuisine way before white America did. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that is like the Chinese immigrants who are coming in, um, you know, Tex-Mex, Italian food, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. These, these immigrant communities were getting to like experience and experiment with each other's foods way before it became part of the mainstream. Right. So like, when did meanwhile, like white people are just eating lots of pancakes and like, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, okay. So when did soul food become soul food? The word soul as it pertains to black culture came into common use during the 1940s with black jazz artists. Mm -hmm. And of course, during that time, we also had white jazz artists who were like, oh yeah, this is our music. And they were taking like the better gigs and they were taking credit for everything. Mm -hmm. So black musicians started to blend the sound of their like Southern gospel music into jazz music and that blending, they started to describe that sound as soul. Right, right. From there, soul becomes a label for all sorts of aspects of black culture, soul right. music, soul brother, soul food. Yeah. Soul Food shows up for one of the first times in, actually, the autobiography of Malcolm X in 1965. Oh. Okay. Yeah, it was like one of the first like written instances yeah. mm -hmm, okay. of that term. The term and the cuisine become a tentpole of the Black American identity. Right. But it did have its critics. There mm. were a lot of people, activists, people who were known in the Black community who thought that soul food was unhealthy and it was slowly killing Black folks. Mm -hmm. There were people who were part of, is it Nation of Islam? Is that what it is? Yeah. Is that what I'm thinking of? Mm. That were like, we don't do that because we don't, you know, like we don't eat soul food because it has pork. There were Black vegetarian activists who were mm -hmm. like, it's a meat heavy diet, that kind of thing. There were also other folks who thought that it was not true African food because of the colonial and European influence. Sure. Yeah. So they were like, we shouldn't even be eating this food. Right. I mean, I get it, but also. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not wrong when they say that, but does that have to be a value judgment? You know? Like, yeah. That's a good way to put it. And yeah, I guess that's like, everyone makes that decision for themselves, I guess. I just think that like to like food and art I think can be some of the best forms of diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for people. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm in the mental space to talk about this, but I will just say that I think that food and art can be the, some of the best forms of diplomacy mm -hmm. um, and ways to like share culture with, yeah. with other people. Right. 
But however, having said this, that there were these critics and everything, there were also a lot of folks in the black power movement that felt a lot of pride in soul Mm -hmm. food, Um, especially during a time when a lot of white folks thought that black people had no culture or cuisine, which is just, what the fuck? Fucking glass houses. Jesus Christ. Like. It's just hilarious to me that you're going to be in somebody's house taking shit from them and being like, you have nothing in yeah. here. Um, what the hell? <sighs> um, so apparently the magazine Ebony Jr. Mm-hmm. was instrumental in spreading cultural awareness of soul food dishes to middle class black children who were typically eating a more standard American diet. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So soul food today. Um, So we've got the mother cuisine of Southern food, which in its pure form is closely tied to region. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a good way to think about that is like, if you think of barbecue, the way there's like Texas barbecue, Memphis barbecue, just like Kansas city barbecue. Right. Right. So like, if you think about it like that, like it's tied to region, then we've got modern soul food and that comes to us in its most recognizable forms through restaurant owners, like a woman named Sylvia Woods in Harlem Mm -hmm. and also home cooks that are like experimenting with these recipes and they're instrumental in these dishes surviving outside of the American South. Mm-hmm. They're also starting to use canned, dried, fresh, frozen, and packaged ingredients. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're really talking like modern, you know, right? Um, modern stuff. From there, three sub cuisines emerge. And the first one is down home healthy. Okay. And this branch took the original soul food recipes and looked for ways to like cut down on the salt, sugar, and fat. Mm -hmm. So doing that is, you know, you're subbing things like smoked turkey for smoked pork Mm -hmm. in your, in your greens, you're grilling or baking instead of frying. Right. That kind of stuff. Then we've got upscale soul food, which is basically just like the exact opposite of down home healthy. (laughs) (laughs) So upscale gets really extravagant with its ingredients. So maybe you're frying in duck fat Mm, or you're using heirloom vegetables and heritage meats Mm -hmm. in your dishes. Right. Right. Next. And this one's had, this one had a bit of a moment around 2016 is vegan soul food. Mm. Yeah. Which might sound antithetical, but the truth is that historically a lot of soul food side dishes were basically vegan or vegetarian, especially if you look at what newly freed black folks were eating during reconstruction, because meat just wasn't readily available. And if it was, it was being used as a seasoning and not as like a dish. Miller says when people hear, um, when people hear vegan soul food, they're like, what? That doesn't even make sense. And I'm like, it's not an oxymoron. It's actually a homecoming. Mm, interesting. Was, yeah, yeah. I was like, that's so cool. Yeah. Michael Twitty, an African-American Jewish James Beard award-winning writer, culinary historian, and educator says that soul food brought not just flavors and dishes to our tables in the article from yes magazine that I cited, he talks about this West African custom. I don't know if it's Taranga or Taranga, and it's an idea of neighborliness and hospitality, mm. which is sort of like the defining trait of Southern gentility. Right right, 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 right. But those were values that were passed to white children who were raised by enslaved black women. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Twitty says, quote, we were taught to believe that Southern hospitality was grounded in some sort of like medieval pass down. It was this thing that we inherited from our African side mixed with a little bit of European and native concepts of hospitality and neighborliness. Mm -hmm. Again, just a really cool history to think that like, of course you think of like Southern hospitality and all of that stuff. And the main driving force in that was not the descendants of white Europeans, but rather enslaved black people mm-hmm. and the indigenous communities of the that were that were native to the area. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fucking cool. Yeah. Um, it brings me to the last and final point about soul food. One of the best things that we can do to respect this cuisine is to give credit where credit is due. So that means honoring where these recipes come from and attributing them to the black chefs, restaurateurs, yeah. cooks who created these recipes. Adrian Miller says that he would love to see restaurants, especially those who are like locally sourcing their ingredients mm-hmm. to also culturally source their dishes as well. Yeah. And the the example that he gave was talking about Nashville hot chicken. He's like, if you're going to make a, if you're going to have a version of hot chicken on your menu, you need to be like, this is based on the Nashville hot chicken that was originated at Prince's in Nashville. Um, And I think this is the type of thing that, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost like the type of thing that led us to do the podcast is it's like, if I saw that menu that had all the like little stories about where all this, Oh my God. Love it. Me too. Like knowing where all this stuff comes from would be great. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing when we talk about like, I like cultural appropriation is real. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that food can be a tricky thing with cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that this is an excellent way to handle this. It's yeah. not saying that if you are of like, you know, white Anglo-Saxon heritage that you can't open up a taco restaurant, right. but you need to know where those tacos come from. And you yeah. need to be like, Hey, we're getting these recipes. We were taught by these people in this place the minimum that you have to do is just to be like, is just cite your sources. It's just yeah. like, you know, writing a paper in your sophomore English class. Like you've got to cite your sources. Right. And so that is a quick look at the deep and fascinating history of soul food. That's if cool. you're interested in learning uh, more about this story, because there is a vast history, you can and should check out Adrian Miller's book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, and Michael Twitty's book, The Cooking Gene. And you can also check out Donna Pierce's website, Black America cooks mm, okay. uh to learn a little bit more yeah one of the best meals i ever had was in boston actually and it was i guess it would be what you kind of described as the upscale soul food mm-hmm. um there was this this kind of jazz blues club um and i went there um, two or three times and it was i didn't go there that much because it was expensive that's what one thing I remember, but it was yeah. um like the food was just I think that might have been the first time I ever had collard greens and like oh, nice. it was just so good. Like nice. everything there. Like you couldn't order anything off of that menu and not get an amazing meal. Yeah. I um so Bolivian diets mm-hmm. don't really include vegetables in the way that like other cuisines do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that this is, uh, I think this is something that can be kind of common across Latin American cuisines. Yeah, The vegetables can be kind of used as a garnish. They get a lot of sauces that we make are vegetable based, but like having a side of Brussels sprouts or peas, it's or just... it's just not 
this what we do. Yeah, yeah. So I was honestly probably, God, I think it was at Nexus here the first time I tried yeah. like greens yeah. like that. And I was like, what the, f- these are good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nexus yeah. makes their, makes their greens with a smoked turkey. Mm, okay. Yeah. Very good. Awesome. That's that's really interesting. That's yeah. like, I I knew I liked soul food, but I didn't really know any of the history of it. So yeah, I think the history of cuisine is like it's fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. There is um, hold on, I'm gonna look it up as I'm talking to you. There is an account that I follow on Instagram, and I think it's I'm vamping, I'm vamping. <laughs> um, I believe it's called History History Bakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this, okay. I was like, it's this person, but she has her pronouns in her, uh, in her bio. It's this woman named Aurora Claire and the, like the bio for the account is dessert in context. Mm. So she will find these sort of historical dishes and do essentially this with it, go back and be like, Hey, you know, here's the history of instant coffee. Right. Um, here is the uh, Jewish history of Jello. Interesting. Yeah, and that kind of stuff. So it, it's pretty bite-sized, like it's stuff that can be done within a post. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I find really, really fascinating is like depression or hard time foods. Oh yeah. Because a lot of dishes that we look at now as sort of like fruit, fruit coco van is a big one that is a hard time dish because you took an mm-hmm. old chicken. I think it was even like an old rooster yeah. and you would like, you know, braise it for hours in a pot to make it tender. So it's stuff like that, that it's like, we did like these were dishes that were created out of necessity, yeah. not because they, they were the ingredients that we chose. Ugh, well, ne- I think that's the so necessity could lead to a lot of creativity. Then. It is the mother of invention. They yeah. say. <laughs> Exactly. So, <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's great. I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to do, a f- you do all the food stories. I'm going to have to do a food story at some point. Okay. Maybe yeah. I'll do, uh, it's coming up. Um, maybe I'll do like the history of like the Seder Passover meal. Oh, yeah. 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 But not today. Today, okay. I'm going to tell a different story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, before I do, are you done? You, you are yes. done? Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, like I said, this is also uh, Women in Horror Month. Yep. And last year, I kind of did like an overview of many, many, many women who have contributed to the horror genre. But I'm going to talk about one specifically today. But before I do, I just want to ask, who would you say, and I know you're not like a big horror fan, um, but who would you say is like the most influential horror writer of the 20th century? Influential horror writer of the 20th century? Like like what name pops in your head when you say horror author? Who's the Stephen first King Stephen is King, the first. Right? Yep. Yep. And then if you're like a little bit in more in the know, you might also say, well, also H.P. Lovecraft. Like, mm-hmm. These two guys are kind of held up as like the bookends for the 20th century. Right. You know, in horror literature. And you could say like there were women who were writing in horror. Uh, you know, there was Daphne du Maurier. There was Shirley Jackson. But they were kind of they would like dip into horror, but they weren't like committed to horror. <laughs> um, OK, they were horror adjacent. Yeah. I mean, they're more than horror adjacent, but they were like kind of in and out, you know? Okay. But I think if you're going to talk about like the three most influential horror authors of the 20th century, you're going to say Stephen King, you're going to say H.P. Lovecraft, and you have to say Anne Rice. Ooh, okay. Like she, I think she is as influential as 
Stephen King, but people don't think of it. And we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to why, like, yeah, I can come up as much, but yeah, because I I don't know that I would immediately think horror when thinking about right. Anne Rice. Well, and that that's kind of that's kind of what I'm going to get to. So. Okay. okay, because Stephen King had like a very direct influence on horror, horror fiction, horror movies. Right. Lovecraft kind of did in a more specific way. Anne Rice kind of helped develop an entire subculture. Ooh, okay. Uh, so today I'm talking about the life and work of Anne Rice, specifically her Vampire Chronicles, okay. and how she deeply influenced the the goth rock subculture. So, <laughs> okay. <Cool. laughs> um, so my sources are Wikipedia, of course, an article from UndergroundEngland.com called "The Melancholy of Sounds: A Brief History of Goth Rock," from Salon.com, uh, eleven facts about Anne Rice's interview with a vampire, and then a couple books. One's called Encyclopedia Gothica by mm. a woman named Lisa Ladicour. It's pretty goth. It's a pretty gothy name, actually. Yeah. And then another book, Goth, Undead Subculture by Lauren M.E. Goodlad and Michael Bibby. Uh, but first, let's just talk about who Anne Rice is. So, or who she was. Unfortunately, just did pass away last year. Um, R.I.P. So Anne Rice is born. Her her birth name, interestingly, was Howard Allen Francis O'Brien. I'm sorry. Yeah. Howard. <laughs> Howard. Alan Francis O'Brien. Interesting. Uh, she was okay. born on October 4th, 1941 in New Orleans, Louisiana. She was the second of four daughters to a devoutly Irish Catholic family. Her father, who was named Howard, okay. was a veteran of World War II. And then he later was like an executive for the United States Post Office. Mm, um, okay. Anne went to St. Alphonsus School, which was a Catholic school in the area. I think all of her, she and all of her siblings went there. And so about that name, like obviously she's named after her father. And there were a couple of stories. Uh, a couple of people said, oh, her father really wanted like to name at least one of his kids after him. And I think it was like all girls. So mm-hmm. he just, he was like, you're going to be Howard. Um, okay. The other story, this this comes from Anne herself. She said, well, my birth name is Howard Allen because apparently my mother thought it was a good idea to name me Howard. My father's name was Howard. She wanted to name me after Howard, and she thought it was a very interesting thing to do. She was a bit of a bohemian, a bit of a mad woman, a bit of a genius, and a great deal of a, of a great teacher. And she had the idea that naming a woman Howard was going to give that woman an unusual advantage in the world. Interesting. Um, and that didn't... Real- yeah, sorry, ahead. real fast. This makes me think of in Ted Lasso, which I know that you haven't watched, but there's a character whose first name, his uh his everybody calls him Higgins, I believe mm-hmm. is is what he's called. And at some point he says his first name and his first name is Leslie. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Leslie. And he's like, yes, I'm named after my mother. And he goes, I'm what's known as a feminine junior. <laughs> and so that's making me laugh a little bit and think of this, that like yeah. Anne Rice was maybe a bit of a, like a um, reverse feminine yeah, junior. Yeah. I mean, she basically, yeah, she was like Howard junior. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also makes me think of somewhat tied in to this uh, Lizzie Borden. Her real name was Elizabeth Andrew Borden. Oh, I think mm-hmm. I knew that because her father's mm-hmm. name was Andrew, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds like her mom really was like, this is this is going to give you a leg up in life. Cool. Can and learn. Anne was like, not so much. Uh, <laughs> from like when she was very young, she was very self-conscious about the name. So on her first day at the St. Alphonsus school, when I think she was like five years old, uh, she was there with her mother. And the nun comes up. She's like, what's your name? And Anne was just like, Anne. <laughs> 
um, <laughs> because she said she thought it was a pretty name and her mom was with her and her mom just didn't correct her because I think her mom probably at this point was like yeah she's not a fan of being yeah and there's <laughs> I mean there's not a lot that like you know you've got uh, like there are there are certain names that are somewhat androgynous right like Kelly mm-hmm. or Shannon or even Leslie uh, you know Leslie Gail uh right. depending on the spelling and stuff you know what I mean Howard is Howard not. is <laughs> yeah and Howard feels real masculine I mean, it's, it's like Gary or something you know <laughs> So yeah, Anne was having none of it. She was just like, so she told the nun, she's like, my name is Anne. And her mom just kind of let her do it. They Mm -hmm. ultimately allowed her to change her name legally to Anne in 1947. And what was her original last name? Her name was Howard Allen Francis O'Brien. Her father was Howard O'Brien. Okay. Okay. Um, Jeez. O'Brien. Yeah. (laughs) That like clovers are coming out of it. Yeah. And when she's talking about like, they were super Irish Catholic. Yeah. Like hardcore Irish Catholic. Now her father, interestingly, was also a writer, but unpublished. He wrote a novel called The Impulsive Imp, which Mm. was then published after he died. Oh, wow. Um, And her sister, Alice Borchardt, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, either Borchardt or Borchardt. She's a very popular like fantasy and romance author. Ah, okay. Um, So it's like a whole family of writers. There's her son, Christopher, who I'll talk a little bit more. He's also a novelist. So this, uh, the O'Brien family, they lived in New Orleans. Uh, They lived in a home that they were renting from her maternal grandmother. And it was in an area of the city that Rice would refer to as the, quote, Catholic ghetto. Mm. Um, Her grandmother was like very like big influence on her life. They called her Mama Ellen. She was a domestic worker. She unfortunately died in 1949. So when Anne was still very young, they continued to live in this home that she had owned though. Unfortunately, Anne's mother had a drinking problem and alcoholism is something that seemed to go down to this family. I think her father mm. was also an alcoholic. Um, her, or her grandfather, I should say, was an alcoholic. Her mother was an alcoholic and her mother ended up essentially dying from complications of alcoholism when Anne was just 15 years old. Wow. Um, and after that, her dad then moved her and her sisters to another private school. I think it was a Catholic school. It's called St. Joseph Academy, also in New Orleans. Um, it was like an all-girls school. And what Anne said about that, she said, it was something out of Jane Eyre, a dilapidated, awful, medieval type of place. I really hated it and wanted to leave. I felt betrayed by my father. Mm. Um, but then her father remarried in 1957, I think, when she would have been like kind of getting towards the end of high school and mm-hmm. they ended up moving to Texas. They moved to kind of right outside of Dallas. And that's where Anne met her future husband, a guy named Stan Rice, who also went on to become a pretty renowned poet and artist in his own right. They were basically high school sweethearts. I think they, they, they like dated in high school, but then they were like going off to school and they just kind of kept sort of coming back together. They were married uh, up until when Stan died of brain cancer in 2002. So after high school and she did college for a couple of years in Texas, she ended up dropping out. I think she went to a couple of different schools and then she dropped out because she kind of ran out of money and she couldn't find a job. I don't think her family was particularly well off. Mm. So then she was just like, I need to work. So she ended up a family friend invited her to come out to San Francisco where she worked for a while as an insurance claims processor. And then she ended up moving with like her, uh, a friend of hers from Texas ended up also coming to San Francisco. And the two of them got an apartment in like the Haight-Ashbury area. And this is like Haight-Ashbury in the fucking 60s. Yeah. <laughs> this is like 
hate Ashbury. Yeah. <laughs> she said about living in hate Ashbury, she said, I'm a totally conservative person. And I don't think she meant politically conservative. I'll talk about that a little bit. But she says, I'm a totally conservative person. In the middle of hate Ashbury in the 1960s, I was typing away while everybody was dropping acid and smoking grass. I was known as my own square. <laughs> oh. But everyone's just like fucking on like a bad trip and hate Ashbury. And she's just like in her fucking apartment scribbling away. <laughs> hate Ashbury during that time and New York in the 80s mm-hmm. are so, two cities in two very specific time periods that I'm fascinated by. Whenever I hear stories about those places and those time periods, I'm like, this just sounds like Rome under Caligula to me. Like, right. Like, and like sort of in a fun way. <laughs> Maybe yeah. less murdery than Caligula. But like, well, <laughs> well, I think it's, it's, it's uh, like total like debauched decadence. Yeah. Know? And I'm like, I'm specifically interested in New York in the eighties in terms of like the gay community mm, yeah. uh, with the advent of the AIDS crisis and everything. Yeah, and I was... like, it is a fascinating thing to talk to people who lived in New York during that time. Dear friend of mine was living in New York at that time. And he talked, he talked about how like just hundreds of people that he knew just died during that yeah. time. Well, I think back to my whole thing about it being a debauched, like I think from what I know about New York in the eighties, it was like you had the gay community was being decimated by this disease. And meanwhile, on wall street, it was just like fucking party time. You right. Know? And, but you Studio also, 54, like, yes. And you also have hip hop culture yeah, and graffiti and everything starting to really like bubble up. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. and again, kind of the same thing with hate ashbury in san francisco in the 60s and 70s of just like all of these cultures like coming together and right just and a lot of great up. things can come out of it and then also you end up with like the manson family so there's like a dark right. side to it too but Correct. like but and she was like she was not part of really any of that she was, yeah. she was living there but she was just she was really wanted to be a writer she ended up marrying stan like he came out to visit them they kind of resumed their relationship she ended up going back to texas for a while they married in 1961 and then he moved back to san francisco with her mm. and they were still living in the Haight ashbury area and she like this is one thing that i thought was interesting is there's a lot of like her stopping and starting her education mm-hmm. you know she starts college and she has to drop out because of money and then she starts college and then she gets married and she starts college and she has a kid and you know so like you know she and stan get married she ends up finally getting a bachelor's degree from san francisco state university in 1964 where she studied political science and then they had a daughter michelle in 1966 i'm going to talk about her because she's she's kind of important to interview with a vampire so i'm going to talk about her a little bit more in a little bit okay and started studying for a phd at berkeley she was like in their like literary you know literature department but she she hated it and she said i wanted to be a writer not a literature student and she really she didn't like the constraints she didn't like this focus on criticism and literary theory and so she's mm-hmm. like i just want to fucking write um so she ended up switching her focus to creative writing she left berkeley she went back to san francisco state and then got a master of arts in creative writing in 1972 later she would actually go on to chair that creative writing department wow okay so let's talk about their daughter uh this is this is pretty sad so michelle she was diagnosed with something called acute granulocytic leukemia in 1970 and i didn't look up what specifically that means granulocytic and would later say that she had like a prophetic dream about this before her daughter even got sick she said she had a dream that her daughter was quote dying from something wrong with her blood oh 
she ended up right before she turned six years old. She passed away in 1972. Oh my God. They did end up having another child, Christopher, in 1978. And Christopher, like I said, he's gone on to become, he's a very popular novelist today. Mm-hmm. He actually published his first novel when he was 22 years old. Oh, so, I mean, I'm sure having like Anne Rice as your mom didn't hurt. It probably didn't hurt. Yeah. I've read some of his stuff, like some of his shorter stuff. He's a very good writer. Oh, nice. But Anne had at this point also developed a drinking problem. So she and Stan ended up quitting drinking altogether in 1979, not long after Christopher was born, because she didn't want her son to have the same experience with her that she had had with her mother. And I think she like, she, when you read her talking about her mother, she clearly very much loved her mother, but I mean, yeah. her mother was an alcoholic. She, she had a disease. and that's- Yeah. And alcohol, like parents who have substance abuse issues, yeah. it's just, I mean. Like, I think her mom was a hard. very, from what I've read, I could be wrong with this, but I think her mom was a very loving mother, but just was not like equipped. Yeah to handle being a mother you yeah. know? I think there's a lot of chaos and stuff so she didn't want that for her son so she mm-hmm. ended up and I think they stayed sober for the rest of their lives good for them um okay so let's talk about interview with the vampire so Michelle died in 1972 and at this point he had written a short story that was ended up being the basis for an interview with a vampire while she was still grieving the death of her daughter in 1973 she took out that original story and expanded it into a novel And she said at the time, she didn't realize how much her daughter's death was affecting the novel. Mm -hmm. But looking back, this is what she says. She says, I pitched myself into writing and made up a story about vampires. I didn't know it at the time, but it was all about my daughter, the loss of her and the need to go on living when faith is shattered. And I just think about the Claudia character. Yeah. And yeah. like, I don't know. I didn't find this anywhere, but I'm like, that had to have been like At a least ver- part of it, right? Like, like an allegorical version of her daughter and yeah. what happens to Claudia and the story and everything, you know? So that was something I never knew before. I thought that was really interesting. She finished the first draft of the book in about five weeks. So still in 1973. And then she, she was trying to sell it and she couldn't sell it. And I think, and I'll get to this, like it was really breaking the conventions of the vampire story. Okay. And this is partly how it's going to like influence goth culture. So vampire stories at this point were still primarily vampires were depicted as monsters. Okay. And like sometimes they were sexy monsters, but they were still (laughs) monsters. sexy Um, monster i mean who doesn't love a good sexy monster yeah well i mean but think about i mean it's so funny to me that like bella lugosi was considered a sex symbol because like you (laughs) your face (laughs) but if you look at the um the hammer dracula films from the 60s christopher lee was very handsome man played dracula so i mean there was you know the suave vampire like i've talked about you know this was kind of invented by john polidori with the lord ruthven character that became dracula that right it's this and there's this whole thing of like you know thrall and seduction and the like penetrating of the fangs and the you know i mean like it lends itself to sexiness in the way that like a mummy does right. not. But these were still essentially horror stories in the sense that the vampire was not the point of view character. Even if mm-hmm. they were sexy and seductive, they mm-hmm. were still an interloper coming in, 
thing, you know? Right, right, right. I mean, this is why, like, you know, people talk about Ted Bundy as being like a Dracula type of figure. Oh. You know, handsome, charming, right. but totally opaque in a way. Right. And that's the way vampires were. Or they were, they were like, monstrous. You know, right. there, was, there was still the, like, sort of the classic, more monstrous vampire character. Mm-hmm. Anne Rice's innovation. And I really think this was an innovation. Like, there were probably some stories that had sort of touched on this before. I mean, in fact, she was inspired by a sequel to Dracula from 1936 called Dracula's Daughter. Mm. She was inspired by the main character in that. But, you know, that was kind of a niche film. Her real innovation was this idea of we're going to get inside the vampire. And the vampire is not going to be the interloper. The vampire is going to be our point of view character. And to her, this is what she said about it she said it established to me this is, she's talking about dracula's daughter she says it established to me what vampires were these elegant tragic sensitive people i was really just going with that feeling when writing an interview with a vampire i didn't do a lot of research so for her it was she inverted our understanding of the vampire because yeah. now we're like there are these lonely misfits you know there's a, there's a tragedy to them they're not scary in the way that even Dracula is meant yeah. to be scary. They may be doomed, they may be dark, but you know, there's an empathy for them that was really pretty new to the genre. And like, just think, think about that influence down. I mean, Twilight, you know, like, yeah. I mean, even Bram Stoker's Dracula, the um, the Francis the Coppola version. Mm-hmm. Like, if you read Stoker's novel, it never gets into Dracula's backstory. And then Coppola takes it and like, you know, he's pining for his lost love when on a ride or whatever. But this is all really like Anne Rice set the table for this. Gosh, yeah. Like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like all of these kind of wouldn't exist without Anne Rice. Very cool. Okay. So like, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Everybody gets distracted by Buffy. Oh, but so so this is like kind of going to what you say we're saying about how like you don't think of Anne Rice as like a horror writer. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why, because she was writing quote unquote horror and in interview with a vampire. I, it's been a long time since I've read it. It has moments that are very scary, but she is kind of she took these horror tropes and then really told a gothic story. Mm. So that's why she's she's more associated with gothic than horror. But, you know, she's kind of. She's kind of straddling that line. So she wasn't, even though she was uh, influenced by Dracula's daughter, the movie, she was not influenced by Dracula, the Stoker novel, because she had never read it, she said. (laughs) She was like, fuck that. Yeah, (laughs) don't need it. Fucking move it on. (laughs) (laughs) Blah, 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 I get it. Dracula, Dracula, Dracula. Whatever, whatever, whatever. Turns into a bat, whatever. I'm doing my own thing. (laughs) So, but so she wrote the book in about five weeks. She was trying to get it published. She couldn't get it published. This is when her like alcoholism was starting to like take Mm. control. She's still dealing with the grief from her daughter's death. She ended up developing what sounds like a pretty serious case of obsessive compulsive disorder. She became like a total germaphobe where she was just like constantly cleaning the house and she was constantly, she was like obsessively checking like locks on windows, locks on doors and stuff. And so what she said about that, she says, what you see when you're in that state is every single flaw in our hygiene and you can't control it and you go crazy. That's her quote. She ended up spending like an entire year in therapy to deal with that. Wow. And she did. It sounds like she basically got it under control. That's good. So I, I think I, I've got to think like this is trick. This had to have been triggered by the trauma of her daughter's death. And, yeah. You know, she ended up attending in 1974. And I'm going to use a word that I don't like, 
but it's the name of the place. Uh, okay. In 1974, she attended the Squaw Valley Writers Conference in mm-hmm. Squaw Valley, California. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm just Which is, gonna- isn't sorry. Go ahead. Isn't that being renamed? I was going to say they also call it Olympic Valley because uh-huh. it actually hosted the 1964 Winter Olympics, okay. which is weird because it's like this super little town. But so there's a big movement to be like, well, let's get rid of the squad. Let's just call it Olympic Valley. And I'm okay. like, yeah, you guys should do that. But anyway, but at the time it was called the Squaw Valley Writers Conference. While there, she met a literary agent, a woman named Phyllis Seidel. And then Seidel liked the book. And so she was like, I'll, I'll represent it. She managed to sell it to Alfred A. Knopf publishers. Mm. Now, I don't know if you remember back when I talked about Stephen and Tabby King and how when Stephen King sold Carrie, which is right around the same time. Yeah. His advance was $2,000. Okay. And that was like standard for first time writers is they would get a $2,000 advance against like the hardcover rights. Right. And Rice got a $12,000. Whoa. Really? How much they were like, this fucking book is going to be a money. Okay. I was expecting you to be like, she got a $50 advance. (laughs) $12,000. I did not do the, I did not do the conversion, but I mean, that's probably a good 50, 60,000. I can look it up right now. Hold yeah, on. Yeah. Do, do, do. Okay. So what year was this? 1974. Okay. And it was 12,000? 12,000. 12,000 in 1974. $67,862.56. Hmm. So I was pretty close. Well, yeah. we, I, I think we can round that up to about 68,000. Yeah. See what, two, see what a $2,000 advance. Do that conversion. Heck quick. yes, I will. Two. God, I love conversions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just over $11,000. So, you know, a good chunk of change for a first time novelist, but like 68,000, the equivalent of $68,000. Like, wow. She was like, fucking fucking lighting cigars with $100. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, fucking Salisbury steak every night. Uh, Fucking, we're buying the good coffee. God, that's cool. That's yeah. really cool. I thought, I mean, as much as I love Stephen King, I kind of love the fact that Anne Rice just like blew him out of the water with the advance. I mean, obviously he ended up being like the bigger, probably not that much bigger in terms of best-selling author. Mm. Like she's way up there in terms of the best-selling authors of all time. Yeah. Um, but I, I like that. Like she got the, she got 10,000 more on advance My than God. he did. <laughs> She got six times as much money as he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Yeah. Because I don't think, I mean, I think even at this time, she and her husband, they were kind of just scraping by, you know. Ugh. So Interview with a Vampire was published in May of 1976. It was after a bunch of rewrites. So the editor told her, like, they liked the book. They were like, this is, and I think part of what they were responding to is like, we've never seen a vampire story like this before. Yeah. I've never seen a vampire story that's like from inside the vampire perspective. Right. Um, and they loved like the lushness of it and the gothic mm-hmm. sort of atmosphere. But the editor told her, he said, quote, the book petered out toward the end. Um, mm-hmm. So he wanted her to work on the ending. She ended up adding about 200 pages worth of material. Wow. Um, so like some of the most famous things from the book and the movie like the theater of the vampires sequence oh right remember the movie that was antonio banderas that was all added in this rewrite in the original lestat dies the character of lestat dies okay lewis 
is it Lewis or Louis? I don't know. I don't remember. But the Brad Pitt character, he lights him on I fire. Feel, right. I feel like I remember what's your face is saying Louis. I mean, it probably is because it would be like French New Orleans. Louis, Let's yeah. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the original version, he like lights Lestat on fire and Lestat burns to death. And that's the end of Lestat. In her <laughs> rewrite, she still has that scene but then it's revealed that Lestat survived which was brilliant because then she was able to turn it into an entire fucking franchise a whole thing yeah (laughs) because if you remember like in interview with the vampire Lestat's not the main character that's it's Louis who's the main Mm -hmm. character but in the subsequent vampire chronicles novels that came after Lestat really became like the the central character i think it's kind of like how in star wars it was like luke was meant to be the main character right um but then by the time you get to this like empire strikes back everyone's like luke kind of fucking sucks we <laughs> like han and then han kind of becomes like the fan favorite i think that kind of happened with okay that the book was not all that well reviewed when it first came out hmm. so the pa- st louis post dispatch liked it they said it was quote hypnotically poetic in tone rich in sensory imagery but a lot of other critics were like shit all over it so like a woman named edith milton at the new republic she said quote to pretend that it has any purpose beyond suckling eroticism is rank hypocrisy okay relax please calm the fuck down (laughs) yeah like you could just be like i don't like it (laughs) well i mean my first thing is like what's wrong with suckling eroticism (laughs) like First of all, who said suckling eroticism was a bad thing? Second yeah. of all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, oh, God, pull the stick out of your ass. But what's interesting is I like. The, it makes me feel like that chick's a prude. Oh, totally. I, I know nothing about her other than this, but um, <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, but what, what what's interesting about this, like, I think is if you think about like the tradition that Anne Rice was working in, like she's very much working in this like gothic tradition and, you know, she's, mm-hmm. she's modernized it, but like, she's talked about like her big influences were people like the Bronte sisters and Radcliffe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look back at how those books were treated as like ah, sensation right. novels and, you know, uh, possibly dangerous to the like the pure thoughts of women and blah 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 <laughs> it just it seems like the same fucking bullshit so right so yeah edith I'm, I, I'm not a fan edith yeah i mean just the use of the word rank as well is so like come on i mean hypocrisy um, of what like who's who's trying to claim it's anything other than like fun pot boiler lush yeah. gothic literature you know well and i i like I always have a a little bit of an eyebrow raise. Uh, I get why there are men who were like, no, women are pure and, you know, they don't, you know, all that stupid BS. Mm. But it's always a little like, really, when it comes from other women, because I'm like, you know what your thoughts are. Right. And like, and this is, I mean, we're not talking about someone writing in the 1850s. Like, this is the 1970s. So I, I don't know anything about this Edith Milton, but I'm. She just sounds like Phyllis Schlafly to me or something. She sounds like a bad lay is what she sounds like. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, that was amazing. (laughs) She, poor thing. She's like still alive. She's like, I "I am not. I, we will be getting a strongly worded letter (laughs) from me. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Oh, that's, that's maybe my favorite thing that's ever happened on this podcast. 
Okay. Uh, but anyway, so yeah. And I think a lot of the other reviews were kind of along those lines. You know, just people yeah. like, and you know, and obviously Stephen King went through the same thing of people just being like, right. just, just trash. You know, like uh, the New York Times critic Harold Bloom uh, mm. famously went after Stephen King. You know, right. so it's just like all these fucking hoity toity fucking new york literati people can do you think that that's about i'm what i'm wondering is is how much that has to do with i don't think that the quality of this writing is good versus how much of it has to do with i don't think that horror is a genre worthy of respect i think it's that you know that it's it that there is no way for it to achieve any kind of like high art I think I think a lot of I think a lot of the criticism of horror, gothic literature, whatever, like mm-hmm. a lot of it really like Harold Bloom said something like on a sentence for sentence basis, Stephen King's like one of the worst writers in history or something like that. So he was going after him as a writer. But when you really like read between the lines, it's, he, he doesn't like horror. He's like, he's like, yeah. we should be, you know, Philip Roth, and you know, the Western canon, you know, and it's like, <laughs> you a dick, like, seriously. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, you know, yeah. so people are looking at her vampire books, they're looking at Stephen King's haunted car books or whatever. They're right. like, this isn't literature. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and I think Stephen King and Anne Rice both just went and cried in a big massive pile of money right right because just dabbing we- their eyes with like hundred dollar bills. <laughs> yeah <laughs> because interview of the vampire regardless of this critical reception it was a huge hit and it was like you know like stephen king's career kind of took a minute to really get going it wasn't really until mm. the shining which okay. is his third book that right. stephen king was like a thing Right. Like, Anne Rice, I, from what I understand, was just like right out of the gate. People are like, what the fuck is this vampire book? Nice. This is amazing. So it was a huge hit. Ended up selling, by 2008, it had sold 8 million copies worldwide. Um, it was the first, ended up being the first book in what are called the Vampire Chronicles. Ended up being a total of 11 sequels, including an entire like spinoff series. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people will say like I've, I saw some like reddity fighting over this but like some people were like well the Vampire Chronicles is really only Interview of the Vampire Vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned and, no one cares nerds. no one cares nerd like <laughs> whatever it's they're all related it's fine <laughs> and the second book so by the time her the second of the Vampire Chronicles the Vampire Lestat came out it was nine years later it was 1985 and it got much better reviews so I think by then people were like oh like maybe we like Anne Rice okay of course let's just talk a little bit about where Interview of the Vampire has like gone in pop culture so mm-hmm. it was very famously adapted into the 1994 movie that was in 94 94 yeah <laughs> Wow. I'm going to talk about that time period a little bit here in a second. So okay. the, the movie starred Brad Pitt, of course, Tom Cruise, Antonio Banderas, Kirsten Dunst. It was directed by Neil Jordan, kind of, I think kind of coming right off of the crying game. Mm-hmm. Um, Christian Slater too, right? Christian Slater. He's the interviewer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a big hit. It had a $60 million budget at the time, which at the like for 90s movie budgets, it's not a small budget, but it ended up grossing $223.7 million. So it was, it was a good, it was a good size hit. Famously, Anne Rice was like real salty about Tom Cruise's casting until okay. she watched like the dailies. And then she was like, oh, I was wrong. He's great. So, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I like, I can, I can understand that. I can I mean, understand about, like, why maybe you didn't like, want the guy in cocktail to right? be. Days of Thunder cocktail. <laughs> like, 
be in your like romantic dark vampire story. Right. I mean, if I, you know, I like, I, I get it. Oh, like I remember when the movie came out or when it was like announced and they were like, mm-hmm. Tom Cruise is going to play Lestat. And I had read the book um, and I was just like, really? Like I couldn't see it. Right. Um, and then famously before the movie came out and Rice, she like wrote a, like a column in like Entertainment Weekly or something where she was like, I was wrong. Tom Cruise is great. And then when you watch the movie, like, give him credit. He is actually pretty fucking great in that movie. Yeah, I think it's some of his, like... Brad Pitt (laughs) in that. Sorry, Brad. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, Brad. Yeah, I think it might actually be some of Tom Cruise's most interesting work. I I agree. Yeah, unfortunately, Brad Pitt, he's just... And it's part of it's the character. He's just got to stand around and frown a lot. But, like... Yeah, that's... I'm not really remembering. I don't really remember Brad Pitt in that movie. Yeah, he didn't, like... Everyone else, I mean, even like Kirsten Dunst, who was like a fucking kid, like she was really good in it. But Brad Pitt's just kind of like the hollow center of that movie. But it's like, it's hard to blame him, you know? Right. We've seen him be good in other things. I just think it was a hard character to like really bring to life. Right. Um, So that's the movie. It's also been turned into several different comic book and graphic novel series. It's been turned into a Japanese manga. Hmm. Um, and interestingly, I guess I knew this, but AMC recently bought the rights to the Vampire Chronicles, along with her crossover series, which is the Lives of the Mayfair Witches, for like future television and film adaptations. And cool. in June of last year, they announced that they've ordered an eight-episode first season of Interview with the Vampire. So they're doing Ooh, it as a series. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna premiere in 2022. So that's cool. I didn't I I think I'd read something about that and then I forgot about it. It'll be interesting to see the casting for that. Yeah. And I saw who it was and I, but I didn't recognize any of the names. I didn't write mm, them down. So. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. You didn't write them down in your notebook no. of things to tell Amelia I mean, at a later date. <laughs> I mean, they look like kind of standard CW people to me. I could be totally wrong. It could be like, damn. yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of excited about this show. I yeah. Don't, I really have no idea what it's going to be like. Okay. So, but back to the idea of like how influential she is right so like i said like her influence is not so much in the horror fiction world although it is there it is certainly there but i really think like you've got to look at like goth subculture and mm. how much it pulls from her how she like they kind of developed in parallel like Anne rice it should be said was like super not a goth <laughs> yeah but the vampire chronicles particularly interview the vampire like just hit at the right time so let's just talk a little bit about like goth rock and the goth subculture. I'm not going to try not to spend too much time on this. Okay. Um, but so sort of the like the antecedents of goth rock, uh, you could even like trace it all the way back to the 60s. Like some people have said like the Doors were kind of a proto goth band. They're actually the first band that was labeled as gothic rock. So there was a critic, really yeah, a critic named John Stickney. He described meeting them in the, quote, gloomy vaulted wine cellar of the Delmonico Hotel, the perfect room to honor the gothic rock of the doors. So huh. I think that was like the first in print, but it wasn't like a genre. He was just like throwing out a descriptor, you know? Right. He also like talked a lot about how the doors, their music and their shows were like a contrast to the, quote, pleasant, amusing hippies of the era. Uh, because the doors were like dark and atmospheric right um and then like other sort of proto goth bands people point to like the velvet underground Mm -hmm. um even iggy pop 
to a degree. Mm -hmm. Kurt Loder, who anyone of our generation will remember from MTV. Yes, (laughs) yes. He also used the gothic rock label when he was talking about the Velvet Underground's All Tomorrow's Parties, because that's, Mm -hmm. I think, back when he was a a music critic. Mm. And then some people like to point to the Velvet Underground singer Nico's 1968 solo album, The Marble Index, as being like early goth. I listened to it like as I was doing this and I'm like, it's it's more like experimental music. Mm -hmm. I can see where like people would say that, but it really felt like its own thing to me. Right. It's so funny because I think goth and then I think gothic Mm -hmm. and I don't think of those two things as one being the same or two even necessarily like originating from the same thing. Mm Mm-hmm. But well, I also have a very superficial knowledge of both. Yeah, we'll we'll kind of get to that because Anne Rice is kind of where it all kind of combines. I'm doing okay because you're right; they're not exactly the same thing. Other like bands people like to talk about as being like early goth influences, like people say Alice Cooper. I'm not so sure about that because he's more mm-hmm. like goofy shock rock. It's just like mm-hmm. the tone is so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, people point to David Bowie. They point to Nick Cave, his first band, uh, The Birthday Party. They were like mm-hmm. kind of an early late 70s punk band, but they had a lot of goth elements. Nick Cave kind of went on to be like his own sort of goth superstar. Okay. I don't think he would call himself that, but he was definitely like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds are beloved in the goth world. So, mm-hmm. And then a lot of writers like J.J. Ballard, and of course, Anne Rice. Because like I said, she's kind of happening at the same time. Because goth, when we talk about like goth, there's like waves of goth okay. happen as a subculture. The first wave of goth was kind of in the late 70s. And it really was an outgrowth of punk. Punk started in sort of the mid to late 70s. And then very quickly just started to fracture into all sorts of different subgenres. Because mm. I think the music, like punk was like all about raw energy and simplicity. And musicians were like, after one album they're like okay we want to do something else we don't want to just like do the same three chords over and over again so you started seeing this like all these different like little sub scenes like you had new wave no wave music industrial hardcore you know all Mm. this stuff and goth was kind of part of this This is all kind of lumped under like the umbrella of post-punk you have bands like the damned which started as like a punk band with their first album but they started moving into this like slower darker atmospheric music not just like the raw energy of punk okay i think also goth one thing about punk and I, I love a lot of punk. I love me some punk music. I do. And there were certainly like plenty of women involved in punk, but there's like a lot of dumb macho dude bro bullshit in punk. Okay. I really see goth as like, goth was really early on pushing against this. Like mm. goth embraced androgyny. Uh, mm. pretty early goth was very open to like the queer community so like queer people really started to like gravitate towards goth okay and it became its own like kind of insular world of people who like saw themselves as like misunderstood misfits right they're forming their own family units and own culture um and it was all this like dark romanticism and stuff this is exactly the way Anne rice depicts vampires in her okay okay so i think people looked at interview the vampire they looked at the vampire societies the relationships between louis and lestat and claudia Mm. 
and just really started to it like they were just like fucking right give me yes god yes yeah, yeah. like I mean, bathe I think, me in it i think people were creating the subculture and then they were reading these books and being like i feel seen by these books mm, yeah know? so like i said there were you know these waves of goth you know the the early 80s kind of into the mid 80s was like very much very punk influence and like those bands would be like bauhaus the cure joy division you know, Susie mm. and the Banshees. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as you get into like the mid to late eighties, it incorporated more like dance music. Also, like started to split off into like metal and industrial, which really started to happen in, like the nineties. And that's uh-huh. where you get the you know the Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson and things right. like that. And then goth itself started to like splinter into all sorts of different subgenres. So you got like gothic industrial, goth metal, techno goth, cold wave, dark wave, blah 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 blah. Critics that's too much. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's a lot it's you know and like uh, you know you keep it all in your head um, <laughs> interestingly the critics who started using this goth label and really were throwing it at bands like Bauhaus like Bauhaus a lot of people really point to Bauhaus as like the first proper goth band mm-hmm. like their song Bella Lugosi's Dead which everyone knows is like they're like okay that's when goth kind of finally like coalesced into a thing you know right well critics didn't get it didn't like it and they were throwing this gothic label as like a a way to try to take the piss out of it Mm. um because again like goth gothic literature like these are things that are seen as like low class like right so they're like what is all this gothic posturing you know right meanwhile like the people in the scene were like fucking right yeah like that's yeah Yeah, so so yeah Bauhaus Bella Lugosi's dead and then their album in the flat field which came out in 1980 then you had the cures pornography in 1982 Susie and the Banshees uh 1981 album Juju like this was kind of considered like the pinnacle of that early goth Mm -hmm. um and then meanwhile this is like mostly a British scene happening but you had the death rock scene starting in the u.s um okay. particularly in california so you have bands like 45 grave and christian death death rock is like often like kind of lumped together with goth but it sort of keeps it's like punk influences more to the forefront it's like more okay. abrasive more a little more aggressive but okay. with a lot of similar like kind of gothic aspects so that's goth rock and that's like the goth subculture but like you can really see how like when you get back to Anne rice these people were like you know they're just biting hard into like the theatricality of goth Mm. and then they're reading these vampire books by Anne rice Mm -hmm. um and so like a lot of the fashion and iconography of what became the goth scene really goes to interview with the vampire and the vampire chronicles for one thing like goth fashion tends to be it's very much like victorian and elizabethan fashions if you look at like goth dresses you know in the tight lace corsets and stuff right but then they like punk them up and they make them black and you know with studs and leather and stuff but it but it's right the basis is like these victorian era fashions mm. which were um again like these were all over interview with the vampire Right. Um, and so here's a quote from the Salon article. It says, Rice's debut novel is almost single-handedly responsible for the image of vampires that dominates pop culture today. Conflicted, brooding, and oozing sex appeal from every moonlit poor. They had been angsty romantic vampires before, but even Barnabas Collins, which from the show Dark Shadows, seemed uh-huh. like a relic from another time. Rice gave Nosferatu a modern makeover, imagining vampires as literal rock stars. 
Yeah. And so you can see how like they're these like decadent life of leisure, leisure vampires, you know. Right. And meanwhile, you have these like decadent musicians who are kind of like taking on like aspects of the aesthetic, you know, so you can see right. how it just all kind of marries together. Well, that's an interesting, you know, doing the thing of like uh, what, what that quote said about like these relics versus Anne Rice's vampires that were like, you know, like adapting with the times, right? you know, so they're, they're not trying to look like they're these like, you know, hundred year old vampires or whatever the hell yeah. they're dressing contemporarily may, and, and doing all that stuff, which. Um, we may start with them, but then we're following them through time as like you said, they're adapting. Right. Whereas, like right, Dracula doesn't fucking adapt. <laughs> you know, Dracula. No, he just fucking is Dracula. Dracula. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, Nosferatu is like this old, like ancient feeling right. thing. And the yeah, musty, and like, like cobweb castle. And you know, right. Yeah. And it didn't like it never occurred to me that she was the one who was like, no, they're like, they're trying to like fit in. Mm-hmm. in this society yeah and they just have this thing that like doesn't allow them to do it which again would right. make sense as to why like god people would be like i feel seen yeah exactly and so like and you know back to the idea of like is Anne rice horror or is she gothic and is mm. and it's like i think there are aspects of horror in her work but i do think like she's much more rooted in gothic which is adjacent to horror but not the same mm-hmm. and like you know people sometimes will like to tell me that i'm a goth mm-hmm. like, they'll refer to me as gothic and i'm always like I'm not really a goth like i'm and sort I, of goth adjacent but i'm not right. gothic and i know you love when people try to define you yeah, um, i know you, i know world. you love more than anything when people <laughs> right. try to tell you how you need to identify right. um so i'm sure that goes over well well i mean i'm uh, i'm kind of like whatever because i like <laughs> a lot like i listen to a lot of goth music and stuff but yeah. like but i'm much more like a horror guy you know, right. Because goth tends to be like drawn to this like dark romanticism. You right. Know? And, uh, you know, so like you've got, you've also got horror influence bands like the misfits. Well, they're not really goth because there's nothing romantic about theirs. Mm. You know, they're, they're like bruiser punk singing about monsters and the crawling eye and stuff like that. It's yeah. fun. It's like, but they're like a B movie. They're like the punk version of a B movie. Okay. You know, or you have metal bands like Slayer, you know, that's not goth. You know, right. It's not the same as Bauhaus or Susie and the Banshees, you know. Right. But people really were like just gravitating towards her work because I do think this parallel between how these early goths who really were misfits, a lot of them were queer, kind of coming out of this punk scene that sort of didn't quite accept them. So they're kind of creating their own thing from scratch. And they're reading her vampire books and watching these vampires like having to create their own rules. Mm-hmm. And so there was just like a real resonance between the two ideas. Yeah. And Lestat in particular has, has become this like icon in goth culture. So this is from one of those books. It's from the, the what was the book? Um, goth, Undead Subculture. So they say the subculture's special resonance with postmodern representations of the vampire is even more evident with respect to Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles. Although Rice's first novel, Interview with a Vampire, predated the subculture's emergence by a few years, the Mm. first wave of goths was among her most ardent fans. With their intense emotions, period garb, and culture decadence, Rice's vampires were and remain attractive role models for participants in the subculture. Though goths also hearkened to the antique strains of James Polidori, Sheridan Le Fanu, and Bram Stoker, it was Rice whose vampires anticipated the subculture's portrayal of the late capitalist goth as an alienated but stunningly attractive monster, Mm. a latter-day aesthete and ardent self-fashioner. 
Hence, when Rice's Lestat proclaimed, I am the vampire for these times, he epitomized Goth's emerging subcultural identity. Yeah. Um, another thing that she really brought to the table was like eroticism. Uh-huh. And, you know, these like strains of homoeroticism mm-hmm. that are not explicit in, right. in particularly in an interview with the vampire, but it's like it's definitely a subcurrent. Yeah. And again, you know, the scene was just embraced by many, many queer people. So I think this is again a moment of just sort huh. of feeling seen. yeah yeah um so two movies that i think are like central to like goth identity would be so there's tony scott's the hunger from 1983 okay um that's like came out during this kind of first wave of goth um and that's and that's vampire movie involving a lesbian vampire Mm. and then of course the 1994 interview with the vampire adaptation and this is like i don't think it's coincidental that the movie version of interview with the vampire kind of hit right when the second or third goth wave was happening Mm. this is right this is the same year that nine inch nails downward spiral came out okay right around the time that marilyn manson and you know yeah um so you know you just see like this influence just like continuing over and over and over Okay, so I want to go ahead and kind of wrap up here. So let's just get back to Anne Rice. Yeah. Good Lad and Bibby in their book, they sort of, they say that Rice, she wasn't part of this like goth subculture, but she was very influential on it. So they see her as like kind of a bridge between like classic goth, you know, the Anne Radcliffe, Bronte sisters goth, and then Mm. this more contemporary gothic literature. She kind of like started the modern gothic lit movement. Mm -hmm. um they also really kind of center her in like the southern gothic and particularly interview with the vampire is very southern it's very new orleans right 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 um so they like have a whole passage i'm not going to quote it but they have a whole passage where they compare interview with the vampire to william faulkner's absalom absalom which is generally considered like a southern gothic novel and uh, you can kind of see this like resonance that I think is just that like Southern whatever kind of working its way in. You know? Right. She ended up going on to influence a lot of other writers. One I want to mention in particular is a person named Poppy Z. Bright. Poppy Z. Bright was big horror goth horror writer in like the late 80s through kind of the mid 90s they wrote queer modern gothic like southern gothic novels that were very deeply indebted to Anne Rice but Mm. much more like punk rock you know like like Poppy Z. Bright kind of was coming out of this goth subculture okay so their novel 1992 vampire novel Lost Souls is kind of seen as almost like a spiritual successor to the Vampire Chronicles I should say about Poppy Z. Bright Poppy Z. Bright has since I believe stopped writing oh has also has transitioned so Poppy Z. Bright is now going by Billy Martin okay so a that's why I'm, I'm uh, trying to be careful with the pronouns there. Right, right. Um, Poppy Z. Bright was one of my favorite writers at the time period. I actually discovered Poppy Z. Bright before Anne Rice, and Poppy Z. Bright kind of took me to Into, Anne. yeah, very yeah. cool. So Anne Rice went on. She wrote many, many other books. Uh, like I said, the Vampire Chronicles are like 11 books at this point. And then she has these like other series that are kind of connected to it. I've mm-hmm. only read, I haven't read that much Anne Rice. Like I've read Interview mm-hmm. of the Vampire. I think I've read the first three Vampire Chronicles and maybe The Witching Hour. Okay. Um, They're all really good. I'm sort of due, I think, to go back and at least reread Interview with the Vampire because I loved it in high school. Uh-huh. She's also uh, wrote some erotica. Oh, yes. This I know. Uh, fucking bring it in. Uh, <laughs> she wrote 
uh, like three erotic novels inspired by Sleeping Beauty. They were yep. the claiming of Sleeping Beauty, mm-hmm. Beauty's Punishment, and Beauty's Release. Yes. Uh, I, uh, I, I don't know why to... I got real creepy on that. <laughs> <laughs> I used to uh, sneak over to our local independent bookstore mm. uh, and uh, like sit in the aisle and read the Sleeping Beauty books. Because I was just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> nice. And oh they were, my God. Were they under her name? or Because she <laughs> initially published them under a pen name. It was A.N. Raquelar. That's what I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember if by the time I got to them, they were under her name or not. But they are the 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 thing to understand about these books is that they are not just like erotica. They're actually they deal with a lot of kind of like BDSM mm-hmm. stuff. Which I, you know, at the time, this was like when I was in high school, I was just like, what is this? Brain, <laughs> like just yeah. all the neurons yeah. blowing up. I yeah. was just like, what? <laughs> does it what what does it mean so yes yeah and i think for a long time she was like a little salty about like people would bring up these books and she i think she was like kind of embarrassed about them but then i think she sort of was like sort of embraced them later on you know? yeah i mean you wrote them you know what i mean yeah, like be f- proud of them annoying. they're yeah. like they're dirty as fuck like they're great I know, like, I've talked to people who are like, have said they're really good. And it's like, yeah, fuck Fifty Shades of Grey. You should go to those Sleeping Beauty books. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to shame anybody. But if you are interested in like kink erotica, yes, perhaps these are worth um, checking out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, it would be interesting, I think, to go back and read them now through like a 2022 lens Mm -hmm. to see, because I think that's, that's kind of the thing, right? Is that like looking at something like 50 shades of gray through a 2022 lens, you're like, this is a deeply toxic (laughs) relationship, (laughs) you know? And it would be interesting to see if that kind of stuff comes up with the sleeping beauty books Mm -hmm. as well. Or if it's what I don't remember is that if it was like, yes, this is inherently like it's toxic and it's hot you know yeah well i mean because yeah i mean these books i believe were written in the 70s like 70s or 80s and she was she was publishing them under a pen name yeah interestingly so she had been raised she was raised catholic but she went pretty atheist for a long time Mm -hmm. she returned to the catholic church in 1998 after she ended up going into a coma because of diabetic ketoacidosis Wow. She almost, yeah, and she almost died. And so when she came out, I think that was, you know, it's the whole saying, there's no atheists in foxholes kind of thing. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, I think, you know, she was staring death in the face. And so that kind of brought her back to faith. Mm-hmm. But she remained very outspoken about her disagreements with the church. And that's mm-hmm. why when she said earlier, like, I'm a very conservative person, I don't think she meant politically conservative. Yeah. Because she was very outspoken pro-abortion rights pro-birth control, and very loudly outspoken in favor of LGBTQ rights. Uh, And some of this is because her own son, Christopher Rice, is gay. Oh, okay. They had a very close relationship. Yeah. So she was kind of like, don't come after my fucking kid, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So she did did kind of move into writing like religious-based novels for a while. And then in 2002, her husband died of brain cancer. And she mm-hmm. ended up deciding to leave New Orleans where she had lived forever and move out to California. She settled in Rancho Mirage, California in 2006. Uh, that was really so she could be closer to her son. 
uh, who lived in LA, I think still lives mm-hmm. in LA. And then she had a second break with Christianity around 2010. So this is what she had to say about it. She said on her Facebook page, she said, today I quit being a Christian. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. And those are in quotes. Mm-hmm. It's simply impossible for me to quote, belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years, I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. Wow. I'm not sure what happened. I have to think like a lot of the arguments around gay marriage probably Mm. were were pushing her away. Because this is like around the time that like Proposition 8 in California was happening. Right. She also later said, she said, my faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist lost in a world I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ Mm. is infinitely more important than Christianity and always will be no matter what Christianity is, has been, or might become. Hmm. So, and then by kind of towards the end of her life, she was told, she was describing herself as a secular humanist. Wow. Okay. It was quite a journey there. Unfortunately, Anne Rice did pass away last year. She died on December 11th of 2021 day after my birthday. Yeah. Um, She had a stroke in a hospital in Rancho Mirage, California. She was, I believe 80 or 81 years old. Wow. Um, Okay. Yeah. And uh, I believe she has been interred back in a mausoleum, like a family mausoleum in Mm -hmm. New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And that is the story of Anne Rice and her influence on both horror and the gothic subculture. Gosh, what a boss bitch. Yeah. Very cool. Like doing all the research, because I haven't read Anne Rice in Mm -hmm. fucking 20 plus years, probably. Mm -hmm. And going through all this, I was like, I need to go back and read it. Because I remember really digging Interview with a Vampire. I think I liked the sequels less because they definitely moved interview the vampire is the most horror of that series i think Uh and it felt like the later books really were kind of moving away from horror quote unquote right so like 16 year old me was just like fucking gore whatever there's no monsters there's no monsters so i'd probably appreciate it more now (laughs) right 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 Very cool. Gosh, what a great story. All right. Well, thank you guys. So we will be back in a couple weeks. Yep. With some stories that I I guess we'll figure out in the meantime. (laughs) (laughs) We will think of things to tell you (laughs) yeah (laughs) awesome y'all thanks so much for listening don't forget to subscribe rate review do all the things share we'd love to hear from you guys always it's always a kick when we get comments and messages yeah i don't know if i had something else then i just i think i've had i'm I'm having a stroke okay Okay. so i'm gonna (laughs) cut it here all right everybody thank you all so much uh stay weird stay curious we'll see you next time Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.